you ever met somebody or get introduced to somebody and in those first few seconds of meeting them, you know you don't like them? I mean, you hardly heard what they're saying and there's something about them you just don't like. You know, it's a gut feeling you get where it says, stay away from this person. Well, a couple we have on today, that's how they felt about each other when they met. Now, clearly, our, our gut feeling is not always right because these two, they end up exploring South America together by motorcycle. And in the process, they learn some great lessons and they come up with some ideas that they're going to pass on to us today, including why you should never run a roadblock. And if you do, why it's probably best not to have a bunch of pills dumped inside some Ziploc bags. And oh, by the way, you're never going to guess where they ended up living. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. (laughs) Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting Adventure Riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free, www.maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system, and it's easy to swap from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding, and that's gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. I'm Sam Manning. Brian Phil. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Pat Jones. Robert Schwanz. Nathan Millwall. Tiffany Coates. Simon Payton. Raymond Coach Stroud. Sterling Noreen. Grant Johnson. Helga Ben King. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate the flat tire in less than three minutes, made in the USA, and comes with a lifetime warranty. Best Dress is also the North American distributor for Googletech filters. Their website, www.cyclepump.com, www.cyclepump.com. The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers your oil to your chain with a felt pad on the swing arm, eliminating problems of exposed nozzles near the sprockets. One ounce of oil lasts over 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com There's two eyes in there. motobreeze.com <laughs> It was another hot day in Africa when Jessica and Greg met a few years back. They're both working for NGOs, different ones, but in a relatively small community of foreigners working there, they were bound to meet. And when they did, they both thought the same thing, that they didn't like each other very much. Well, obviously they got over that or we wouldn't have a story today, but it was Greg that started riding first, so that's where our story starts. That's always the, the hardest part is to tell me about yourself, right? Gregor, you go ahead. My name's Greg Stone. I'm from Los Angeles, uh, California, and I currently live in uh, Lake Atilan, Guatemala. And I'm Jess Stone. I'm his wife. I'm from Toronto, Canada, and I'm out here in Guatemala as well. 
Jess and Greg in Guatemala. Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Thanks for having us. So you guys are, are sitting in Guatemala right now, which is your home. That's right. For the past two and a half years. Hmm. Wow. So, Greg, now, now I just want to start with you as far as motorcycling, because I know you were the first motorcycler uh, in your duo. When did you start riding bikes? So I started uh, much later on. I, I must have been uh, 24, 25. Um, I had been traveling overseas a bit and ended up uh, coming back to go to graduate school and had already sold my car, realized I needed some form of transportation that frankly would always be there for me when I come back. Um, and would be easy to, to store. And so motor, motorbikes seemed the right way to do it. Mm. Um, so I took the class, uh, bought a bike, and then within probably 50, the first 50 miles got rear-ended and totaled that bike and, and then took like a five-year hi, uh, hiatus from riding. Because you got rear-ended. Yeah, pulled up. At, I mean, the most classic situations where the driver was texting uh, you know, we're stopped at a light. She pulls up behind me. I hear a screech. Uh, and then the next thing I know, my, my bike is, is sort of upright, but stuck probably a foot and a half into the front of her fender. Wow. Yeah. So, so, so that gave you a scare that you thought maybe you didn't want to ride anymore. Well, uh, it made me rethink it, I suppose. And it also, I guess the, the funny part of that, if, if there's a funny part, but, um, she of course came out of the car, uh, a nice young lady, I mean, a gorgeous young lady. And I was certain that, you know, that I had died and like that was my uh, reward for having been a good person. You know? <laughs> wow. That is, uh, that's quite the imagination. Uh, so, so you, you guys are, are together now, like I said, living in Guatemala. Um, obviously, one of you being from LA, one being from, uh, from Canada. Jessica, you're from Canada. You think I would know you at that rate? You know, right? Do, 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 you, do you know the Emersons? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm sure that my sister does. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that would be the connection for sure. But how did you guys meet? Uh, well, we actually met overseas. So Greg and I both uh, were working in international development. Um, and I was working in South Sudan for a, an American company um, doing, um, doing aid work. And I had been there for about a year when Greg ended up coming. Um, he also got a job with the same company. We, we lived on opposite sides of South Sudan. He was in the northern part. I was in the southern part. Uh, and we rarely saw each other. Um, and the little that we did see, we did not like. Uh, I, Greg thought that I was uh, a bossy know-it-all. And I thought Greg was this arrogant guy from Los Angeles. So we did not hit it off. Um, <laughs> it took about a year for us to sort of warm up to each other. And by the end of our time, we were quitting around the same time. Um, we, we got together um, and from there, we moved on to Liberia, where Greg had a job, and it was an accompanied post, so it allowed me to come with him. Um, and then we sort of started out from there. Is that just your own yeah, I, biases that are, are you see each other and you just sort of make this immediate assumption, or was there something there? Uh, I think we just kind of rubbed each other wrong a little bit. I, I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> I think um, we probably should have should have understood, you know, if they, they say that if you don't like somebody like in the first three seconds of seeing them, you <laughs> you're never going to. But I guess that that didn't work this time. So you wore each other down, I guess, really is what uh, I, or maybe it's desperation. Right. I mean, you're there by yourselves. I mean, how many other people were around? <laughs> maybe it was the, maybe it was the, the small pool you had to draw from. 
you know? I think you've described it as uh, as well or better than, than well, we've been able to. Well, speaking of that, I did always think, uh, so Greg is about two inches shorter than I am. And I had asked him near the beginning of our time, would you ever date somebody taller? Just out of curiosity for a shorter guy. And I wanted to know. And I... He, I remember it as he said yes, but he remembers it as he says no. no. So, uh, but it ended up working out just fine. <laughs> so there's a bit of a there's a bit of an issue there still. I'm not going to dig into that because that's not what we're here for. Hey, we're we're talking about this is back in 2010. That's right, 2010, 2011. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So why do you move to Liberia in 2011? So um, we we finished our I guess tour or assignment in uh, in South Sudan, and I'd gotten a, another position um, this time in West Africa, and uh, you know said well, so um, let me just back up and say I had my design set on like a you know two maybe three times a week kind of relationship, but when you move together to another country, um, that's kind of out. So it it <laughs> very quickly was you know a hundred percent living together and and so forth. Um, so I'm still trying to peel it back to, you know, about three times a week. Um, was that a slap? But yeah, so, you know, I, I got a, a post there, um, Jess with, with her experience all over Africa. I mean, I knew she could get something, you know, on the ground, uh, no problem. And she decided to take a chance. Um, and that, uh, you know, that's where we sort of, I frankly got to know each other. <laughs> what do you guys do? What are you working at? Or what were you working at? Um, I was working for a USAID contractor that was doing um, livelihoods projects and health projects um, in a rural area in Liberia. Really around nutrition, right? And it was nutrition, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Focused on, uh, you know, better harvests um, and distribution. And agriculture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the logistics. So, so what are you doing? You're, you're helping the locals understand a better way? or? Um, it was working with them to do improved agricultural methods. Um, my role was, I was sort of in, in charge of the whole office out there in the field. Um, so I was the field manager and everybody sort of reported to me for their, their specialties. Um, and we, my role was sort of liaison with the, with the donor as well. Um, so sort of give them updates and, and let them know what was going on and, and to, to collect the results about how, how successful the project was. Was it successful in the end? Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it was a, it was a five year USAID project for, I think it was about, uh, uh, I want to say it was 30 million. It was quite a large project. Um, and uh, there were a lot of moving parts with it. Um, but it was it was really interesting, especially being in Liberia, where it was a post-conflict area. Um, there was still um, there was still a, you could still feel a little bit of that post-conflict, the conflict feel. Um, there were people who were still just returning back, um, reclaiming their lands. Um, and really didn't know about agriculture and what to do with their lands. And so this program started to help them um, see the possibilities and help create a bit of a supply chain so that they could sell their products um, and, and understand what the best way of, of planting was. Now, what are you guys using for, using for transportation while you're there? Are you riding motorcycles? Or are you running around in vehicles, four wheels? So normally in, uh, when, we're working, when we're working in Africa, there's normally a driver who will take you. Uh, which is great for me. And, uh, but at the time we were living in Monrovia, um, before I went out to the field and, uh, we didn't have any transportation. So Greg's company was the one that was sort of chauffeuring us around. And when, when Greg started telling me about his dream of doing a full North to South trip, um, that's when we bought the first motorcycle, small one sixty. 
we bought a one, what was it, a TVS Apache, they call it, a 160. Those are pretty ubiquitous in across Africa at this point. Um, so we bought one of those uh, for Jess, and then after she dropped that one a couple of times, then <laughs> I bought one to to get around as well. Jess, you just mentioned when Greg had this idea of the north-south trip. So what is this? Let's talk. How does this idea come up, and what is it? <laughs> so Greg had already done a, a, a Los Angeles to Panama trip. It was in 2008? 2009 to 2009. And so he had already done the trip, but he had run out of money and time by the time he got to Panama and didn't end up completing it and get to South America. So when I met him and we had moved to Liberia, one of the first things that we talked about was this dream that he had to complete the trip and to do it over and to do a full north to south Alaska to to uh, Tierra del Fuego. And he he told me about this. And it was a foregone conclusion that after his time in Liberia, that's what he wanted to do. And as I was listening to this, um, I was thinking, okay, so it sounds like I'm going to be losing my boyfriend pretty soon after we we leave here. Um, But he had mentioned that uh, I would be welcome to come along, but there was no way that he would have me as a pillion. I had to learn how to ride myself. Um, And so that's how my whole motorcycling experience began um, for so that I could come along on this trip and so that I wouldn't have to let Greg go alone. (laughs) So it's just fear. You were driven by the fact that if he goes, you're going to be stuck looking for another boyfriend who wants to go through all that work again. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's smart. That's smart thinking, Jess. I have to say, you know, you've already got something invested. Why start back at ground zero again? So, so (laughs) you go out at this point and you learn how to ride a bike where? So this, yeah. So this was in Monrovia. Um, It was, we, we lived sort of off the main road. It was dirt area. Um, and that's where Greg taught me to ride. And I, I have to say, Greg is like quite the taskmaster. And it was a very difficult thing to have my boyfriend teach me how to ride. Um, I'm already a very nervous person, rider in general. Um, I didn't have my full driver's license at the time. Um, living in Toronto, there was a lot of public transport. And so there was really no need for me at the time. And living in Africa for a number of years, there was always a a driver who would take me around. So the whole learning to ride, drive yourself, it was, was not really, um, what I was, what I was thinking about, especially not standard. Let let me just interrupt just to say that (laughs) she has been and continues to be one of, I, I can't think of anybody else. Um, who says that they feel way more comfortable riding a motorcycle than driving a car. Yes, definitely. Did you have your car license before this when you left Canada? I had like the first set of the graduated license so I could drive alone, but I didn't complete it to get my full license. So I could I could drive an automatic, um, but very like hesitantly. So how does that work then? You You haven't got your full license and now you're going for your motorcycle license? Yeah. So, so I guess Liberia didn't really notice that it wasn't a full driver's license and we basically paid $50 and got our, got our licenses, our, our Liberian licenses. Uh, so I got a driver's license and then they asked if I wanted to include the motorcycle license and I said, sure, why not? So they put the, uh, the the endorsement on there. So I, I automatically had a license. You didn't Uh, have to do a test? 
didn't have to do a test. Uh, basically, Greg's company. She had to do my test. But <laughs> <laughs> no, Greg's company. Uh, we we paid the fee that we needed to, and um, our our licenses were were good enough, or at least my license was good enough at the time. Boy, this is going to give uh, international aid work a bad rep. No, Maybe no. it needs to be edited out. Uh, <laughs> they don't do it that way anymore. This was years and years sure, ago. So yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> So where do we go from here as far as uh, the planning for the trip? I, I mean, you've learned to ride on the bike. You're obviously not going to take those bikes back to North America. So what did you do? Well, I think, first of all, it's important um, that Jess be forced to tell a little bit of a story about. Um, so, you know, she's she's learning, and I'm going to hand this over to her in a second, but she's learning everything sort of second or third hand, you know, by reading blogs and and primarily about women riders and what their experiences have been. And so one evening, you know, that was kind of our like evening thing would be to, to be lying in bed there and, and reading different things and looking through Revzilla for what gear we were going to, you know, and comparing them. Um, and she turns to me at one point and just sort of has this look on her face like, you know, she's just read the most absurd thing you can imagine and says, how is it possible that you can pull up to a stop and just forget to put your kickstand down? I mean, that was like the most absurd thing that, you know, she'd ever heard. Yeah. And now I'm going to hand this over to you. Yeah. I, I, so I, like Greg said, I was reading all of these blogs from, from women writers because I had no idea what it was like to be a woman writer in America or anywhere else. Um, all I had was myself and the internet. So when I was reading those things and when I saw that, that she said that she dropped her bike, I just didn't understand. And so when I did my first solo trip in Liberia, um, it was like maybe a, a half an hour, 45 minutes from our house to uh, a hotel. And that was going to be my first solo ride. And um, I did it. I was really anxious about it. Um, I was really nervous, but I made it. I got into the parking lot, which was my biggest fear about where am I going to park my bike? If I park it downhill, am I going to be able to turn it around? All of these things. And I park and there's a bunch of men who are doing construction work on the hotel and they're there watching me come in. Here I am, the blonde woman coming in. And I'm just so excited and and relieved that it's over that I, and I'm thinking, oh, my bike is feeling so light because before I was thinking, oh, my God, it's so heavy. Uh, and I got there and I was like, oh, it's so light. So why don't I just like lift my leg over it, thinking that it's like a bicycle and it'll just stay up. And yeah, so I lifted my leg over and then the bike fell down in front of all of those guys. <laughs> so that that happened. And uh, luckily they came over and they helped me uh bring the bike back up, but I was red faced and embarrassed. And I called Greg and told him about it. And it was, uh, it was quite the experience for my first, uh, first ride out. And I think also that really sort of valuable experience that I think it probably every rider should have that sort of teaches you to be, um, very understanding of all of the hiccups and the challenges that we run into. Like, you know, when people who, who don't ride or, or just started riding, like, you know, if you're dropping your bike, then it means you're not good or you, there's something wrong or, no, you know, rubbing is part of racing. I mean, random things happen and you just got to have a giggle about it. So, so the, so the North American trip. So what did you end up doing? Did you go back or are you, are you done with your contract and you guys head back home? Yeah. So it was, a my contract was a, a one year contract to sort of build a program and get it off the ground and, and, you know, and then hand it over to local staff. So as that was nearing an end and, um, you know, we were achieving that goal and the bank account was flush again. Um, so I should say on the previous, uh, trip that I did, uh, I did it on a, uh, 1993 Yamaha Virago. Um, so this little kind of cruiser, uh, looking bike, uh, had all kinds of mechanical issues. It was old. It was probably not very well maintained. I got it used 
And along the way, I met this couple, uh, Megan and Marshall. I think I met them in Belize. Um, and one day they, they wanted to take a ride and they said, well, look, we're going to, we're going to go two up. Why don't you hop on our, uh, on the other bike, which was, uh, an F650 GS, you know, the single cylinder at that time. And so that was my introduction to adventure motorcycles. And of course I fell in love and then, you know, it had to be a BMW. <laughs> mm, <laughs> so yeah. Jess didn't have any choice in that matter, really. You know, she, uh, the only thing she could do was decide that it was going to be the, at that t- then it was the G650 because it's a little bit smaller. Um, and I ended up, uh, getting, uh, the F 700 when we moved back to the States, uh, what middle of 2013. Mm-hmm. What did you do with the, like the Virago, the 93 Virago? I bet you one of those problems with the Virago was the dash lights going out when you turn the handlebars back and forth. Uh, that was definitely one of them. I had a regulator go out. I had an alternator go out. I, I had to take the, uh, the, um, carburetor apart on a practically a daily basis. Um, yeah you name it. You know, listen, I wanted to wear a leather jacket and wear, you know, khakis and just be like out in the world. And I knew absolutely nothing other than that. And as you like to talk about, you know, what's the best uh, bike for an adventure? I mean, it was until, you know, you had to deal with the reality of, um, you know, cleaning carburetors and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. And that probably had to do with, uh, with fuel in the area as, as, as you got, um, far down South. Well, listen, I wish I had heard about the, you know, the Google tech filter back then. Um, but, and so I was coming up with using socks and, you know, you name it, I tried it. And then, um, I ultimately found out that it was just the fact that my tank was rusting from the inside. So the, mm. the fuel really had nothing to do with it. Yeah. And the rusting could also be from the fuel from the, um, the ethanol in the fuel and see, cause, mm, cause the bike pro- wasn't made to handle ethanol in that year. Anyway, I, I know we're going down a rabbit hole here. Let's, let's, get, <laughs> let's, let's get back to, so, so you get back, you decide on, on BMWs. Now you're doing this, what, in Los Angeles? That's right. Yeah. So we moved back to LA, um, you know, went straight to the dealership, uh, dealerships, but, you know, got the best deal we could, got a couple of BMWs. Um, like I said, it had to be a BMW at that time. And, um, you know, uh, then it was having to learn to ride a yeah, much bigger bike. So it was right? from a 160 to now I got a 650. There wasn't anything smaller. They didn't have the the three 310 that they have now. That's a big jump. Yes, yes, it is a big a big jump, especially when by even by the end of Liberia, I only had about 2,000 kilometers on the bike. Mm. Well, and you know the thing is too is a G650 is, um, it's a dual sport bike. So it's a tall bike. It's not like getting on a, a small Ninja or something like that, which is a great beginner bike because it's like, it has such a low center of gravity. You've got a lot of leverage with it. That's kind of a, you know, it's a taller bike. It's a dual sport and it's certainly, um, more of a challenge to balance. Oh, for sure. And the fact that, that we bought them brand new. So now I've got this brand new bike, not really know what to do with it. And I'm just so afraid of dropping it. So afraid that I didn't even want to ride it out of the showroom. I got them to deliver it to Greg's mother's house where we were staying. (laughs) And then they rolled it off for me. And I still refused to ride it until all of the crash bars came in that we had ordered from Rosella. So it was just sitting in the garage for a number of days. And Greg's just looking at me like, what is wrong with you? You've got this brand new bike, go out and ride it. And here I am scared to death to, to drop this bike that we just paid so much money for <laughs> until we get all of the safety gear on it. Did you put the bars to the test right as, as you started to ride it? No, Not I actually all. didn't. Well, Did because I was so cautious about where and how I was riding it. Listen, I, I have beat Jess like probably three to one in crashes. 
both, you know, ugly ones as well as just silly dropping your bike. So as much as she has like sort of, you know, was, was fearful of that, she's sort of like a uh, Iceman in Top Gun, you know, I mean, just no mistakes. She just rides it correctly every time. Meanwhile, I'm tipping over right and left. And we'll get to that as we go further into this story, because um, obviously your, your skill level will have to increase when we talk about uh, what we're going to later on. But so planning for this trip, you, you, you said about the crash bars and everything, just sort of a quick rundown on how you equip the bikes. So you go with soft luggage, hard luggage and, and those quick little things. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got uh, we've got hard luggage. Um, in fact, um, we got this great deal on the Vario cases with BMW and made the terrible mistake of just going with those. Um so that was a lesson learned. But, uh, you know, we, I think, did a combination of, of skid plates and crash guards and so forth from Alt-Rider and Touratech, um, hand guards and so forth from BMW. Uh, and then same, you know, same thing with my bike. Um, we definitely had to replace the windscreens um, because, you know, for, for any kind of speed, those, those little screens. I mean, you've seen the F700 windscreen. It's, it's a chiclet. Like not e- it's not even <laughs> a dinner plate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to think what other, what other like must have gear, but pretty much the basics, you know, in terms of crash bars and protection. What, what'd you choose for jackets and pants? Oh, so, so I picked, everything I picked was Dionese because at the time, uh, looking at this stuff just from, Rev, from Revzilla while we were sitting in Liberia in our, in our place, um, I wanted something that didn't look motorcycle-like. I was just, I was just really anxious about the whole thing. I thought, well, why don't I get like an all black suit? Something that would just look okay if I was walking around. Nobody would really have to ask me if I'm a motorcyclist. Uh, so I got all Dionese gear um, and our helmets were, were showy helmets. Yeah, this is a good example of like sort of at what point does becoming a rider become part of your identity? And I think Jess sort of struggled with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I've got this sort of crazy motorcycle looking gear, then people are going to think that I know what the heck I'm doing. And and then I, you know, I can't get away with uh, forgetting to put the kickstand <laughs> down or whatever it might be. So she really wanted it to appear like, you know, I'm I'm not really a rider. I'm just sort of doing this thing. Mm-hmm. That that's a um, really good approach, and and an approach that I, I certainly am a fan of. Uh, I'd rather <laughs> undersell myself than oversell. So I'm right there with you, Jess, for sure. <laughs> good to know. <laughs> so what was your plan as far as the adventure? You're in Los Angeles. Where are you going to go? So the plan, of course, was to go up to uh, you know to Alaska. Um, we were getting started a little bit later in the summer, so you know we knew we would see how far north we would get, uh, and then to turn right around and go south. Uh, and reach really Chile or Ushuaia, depending, mm-hmm. you know, depending. Um, but ultimately, we we did get a bit of a later start. I think it was um, early August. September, late late August, early mm-hmm. September when we left. So, you know, getting too much past sort of your parts there in uh, in Western Canada was, you know, was out of the question. So that's about as far north as we got. Mm, probably uh, a good thing too, because if you got much further by a break in the weather, you'd end up dealing with it on the way back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at that point, you flip around and head back down. Exactly right. Um, we went through. We went through uh, the states. We went through Canada. Uh, sorry, we went through. I want to say Baja. And the thing I wanted to say, Baja, and this is a totally different topic, but I think everybody needs to to think about this because, in fact, we were just talking to a couple that um, that you had on a few months back. Uh, two two wheels in motion, um, and they're kind of coming near that area. And the big decision was Baja or, you know, a different route through Mexico. And I am a huge proponent of um, Copper Canyon uh, as a sort of much more 
adventurous kind of way through. But so we did Baja because of course you've got to do Baja. <laughs> That's just, you got to do it. Um, but anyone out there, I would say consider uh, Copper Canyon. It's but then, amazing. yeah, we, we took the ferry over to Mazatlan and then we went down south. Um, I think we hit we hit everything. We went through Belize and Guatemala here um, and then through Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua. Um, and then we got to uh, Costa Rica um, and yeah. then Panama. And then at Panama, I did not want to take the the boat across. I get I get motion sickness. So there was no way I wanted to take that. And. Greg had already done that, uh, uh, a similar trip, uh, with his father a number of years ago. And he recounts it like it was this horrible nightmare where they're just <laughs> feeling sick all night long and, and nobody's doing well. And I did not want to, to have that experience. So, so we flew ourselves and the bikes over, um, to pick up in, in Bogota and then continued South. Um, and we ended up getting as far as, uh, Santiago, Chile. So at what point, Jess, do you start to feel like the bike's an everyday thing to you? Is, do you already have that at this point? No, not at all. So we did um, one or two or we did two or three uh, practice trips before we set out where we would go to the national parks in California. Um, and I would practice on the twisties and um, just getting used to the higher speeds because obviously in Liberia, there wasn't really anything that was fast moving. Um, so I practiced a little bit, still was really uncomfortable, um, just really anxious about riding. Um, so when we, we went up uh, to Canada and then came back down, um, when we got to Utah on the way back down, that was probably my first fall. Um, it was my first off-road too, if I think about it. Um, it was just really sandy and I just went down. And it wasn't a big to-do, but that was that was probably my first, my first big fall with that bike. Um, and we continued South Baja was a real challenge for me there. I dropped the bike numerous times. Um, it was just really Sandy it just, and we didn't have the right tires. We weren't running our hide and outs that we're running now. Uh, we were riding, um, the, the Torrance, um, uh, tires. Yeah. They're like the, a 70, 30 or yeah. less. Mm. And I just had no experience. I had no understanding about what the best way to ride off road was. Um, so that was a big challenge for me. So it was really only until we got to Panama, where we, before we put the bikes, uh, on the plane, um, we had a really, um, a really, uh, heart to heart, uh, Greg and I about this, um, because I wasn't really enjoying the trip as much as I should have. And the reason why I wasn't enjoying it is because I was just so anxious all the time about what it was, what was going to come up ahead. What's the road going to be like? Is there going to be construction? Is there going to be dirt? Am I going to be able to do it? If I park my bike in this place, if I, am I going to drop it? Am I going to park it incorrectly? All of these things, like they would go on on a daily basis and it was just sapping my energy. So we had a conversation in Panama. Um, and I said, no, I want to continue. I want to, I want to get this, I want to go through this. Um, so we got to Colombia and then that's when things started to get a bit better. Ironically, the the riding was more difficult uh, in South America. Just the roads that we were taking, we were doing more off road. Um, but uh, I think I had a better attitude, and I was feeling a little bit more comfortable. Um, and then by the time we got to Peru and Bolivia, I think I was I was feeling quite good. Mm -hmm. And what was the trip like to that point? Well, I mean, other than the riding difficulties of, of being a new rider on a new bike with a whole bunch of load on, other than those sorts of things, what was the, the actual trip like as far as experience? Well, I, I mean, I think um, probably very similar to the experiences that, you know, uh, a lot of those who've done that in similar trips. I mean, we, we you know, had all of the kind of people that we met along the way and mm -hmm. and challenging roads and you know, trying our first attempts at, at filming our experience and how to share it with people back home. Um, 
but of course, you know, the, the things that really stand out are, are those kinds of, are, are the breakdowns and, and the interactions with, with officials and challenges like that. Um, and yeah, we, right. we had spent about, uh, about a month in San Miguel de Allende in Mexico, um, at the beginning of the trip where, so that I could learn Spanish because Greg already knew how to speak Spanish and I wanted to be, I wanted to feel a little bit more self-sufficient and I needed to have a little bit of a break from, from the riding. So we stopped for about a month where I was taking classes and I, and I think that really helped me. Um, it helped me feel more comfortable in Latin America. Um, and it just, it, it gave me some time off the bike to reflect and to think about what it was going to be like going forward. Now, you guys are showing up to borders with your Liberian driver's licenses, though? No, we we had uh, shifted back to, <laughs> I guess we both had, did you get a? I had to go, license? no, no, I had to go back to Canada. We weren't married at the time. I still I was still a Canadian right. resident. So I went back to Canada and I did the weekend course uh, for my motorcycle license and I got my M2, um, which allowed me to ride by myself. Um, and... Um, and my and my driver's license at the time, I got my complete driver's license. I finished it <laughs> off, um, so I had my license with me. And Greg ended up getting his California license, oh, right? And in fact, one of the first sort of like paperwork challenges in that regard is, um, for whatever silly reason, you know, we put both bikes in my name when we bought them because um, oh, yeah. we were in the states, right? And I wasn't a resident. And you weren't a resident, and for whatever reason, we just kind of assumed that that you couldn't have the bike in your name. So when we, everything was fine through the States and through Canada, but then when we crossed into Mexico, they wouldn't issue the, uh, the permit, right? Uh, the temporary vehicle permit. Um, and they said, look, you know, there's nothing you can do other than Get married. If, if you're married and then you, you can have it in, in your name for both of you. So now we're, we're starting to plan, like it's a little premature, but we're starting to plan. Okay. Well, I guess we got to get married. Well, you know what? We'll get to the end of Baja. We'll get to what to Cabo. We'll have like an impromptu wedding there and then we'll get the, the paperwork there. And so this was all, you know, and it's one of those examples of sort of letting your sort of run away from yourself before you just kind of like, you know, slow down and maybe it's just possible to put the bike in her name. <laughs> so... <laughs> No, but ultimately we were able to to cross over, and uh, and it, apparently it's very easy to just uh, walk into the DMV and in, in San Diego yeah. <laughs> and um, the Bico. So your trip down through South America, you ran into, I'm sure, the usual problems, roadblocks, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and at that time they had a really bad roadblock uh, around the Cusco. Uh, the entire is it a state? Is it a province? Province of Cusco? Um, I think it was natural gas issues. So every town you'd come to, it was blocked, and then you had to kind of take the mud, you know, uh, goat goat trail around it, uh, and see if it lets you out somewhere. So that was one of those, you know, kind of, I mean, I don't want to say nightmares, but but certainly the the challenge of sort of every town you get to, um, you got to find a way a, a way around it. One of those things that sticks in in your head afterward. Where is Cusco for those who don't know? So that's uh, the region or uh, in which Machu Picchu. Um, is located. Yeah, surrounded Peru. by mountains, like a, a real stunning right. area. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely gorgeous and sort of takes on a very eerie feel when, you know, there's burning tires and so forth <laughs> every, everywhere you look. Yeah, you know, that, that's got to sort of raise the hair on the back of your neck because you never really know what you're getting into when you come to that. Absolutely. Um, it's, it is like most things in traveling. It is all about patience. You know, you get into that mindset that you've decided where you want to get uh, each day, where you want to be by the end of the week, 
and you've got to get there. And, and so you only start to get anxious, uh, and things go bad when like the world isn't letting your plan, uh, (laughs) you know, fulfill itself. Um, but as soon as you kind of just let it roll and say, well, look, we'll, if we only get to the, to, from one town to the next today, um, that's what we signed up for. So I think a lot of it is perspective. Um, and that changes your attitude, which then, you know, uh, you're, you are interacting better with the locals who are just trying to get better conditions for themselves and you're not getting impatient with them and you're, you know, you're just sort of engaging and, and then frankly you get let past, uh, mm-hmm. because you're a better version of yourself. We're going to take a short two minute break here and thank a couple of sponsors that helped bring this episode to you. And it's really important that we do this because it helps us produce a show. As a matter of fact, it makes it so that we can do it. And they're great companies that we deal with. So we're very pleased to have them. Anyway, stick around because when we come back, we're going to dive right into running through the checkpoint. You got to hear the story. Stay with us. You know, when things get slippery, um, or really all the time, but I mean, think when things get really slippery and you're stepping in mud and goo, like we are here on the West Coast right now, we're lucky enough to ride through the winter. The mud packs up into everything, your foot, your pegs and everything. And that's where it is so important to have a quality set of pegs. The pegs I'm running, IMS products, foot pegs, they keep my foot connected to the bike all the time. Bottom line, that, that's what it comes down to. So the, the two things that, that I'll tell you that really stick out anytime I think about these pegs is one is how tough they are because when you drop your bike, the peg takes a beating. If you ever notice it, when you pick your bike up, your peg is often like jammed up. They take a beating. These ones, as soon as you give them a thump, if they're stuck up because of the rocks and mud in there, they flop back down into place. They knock all the mud out. That's by design. They design it that way. And you get back on the bike and you are connected. I never, ever worry about my feet moving on these foot pegs unless I want to move them. Check out what they've got, www.imsproducts.com, and do us a favor. Anytime you deal with them, email them, see them at a show. Anytime you see an IMS logo, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Now, the other one I want to mention to you is our friends at the Red Rock Garage. That's the Red Rock Garage. It's a small coffee shop with a motorcycle addiction. They're in Beaverdale. That's Beaverdale on Highway 33 in British Columbia. They've got the best coffee, the cleanest washrooms. They've got a full service station. They've got EV charging. They've got a and b in a camping area for the summertime. I'm telling you, if you're heading to British Columbia or if you're in British Columbia, you need to put this on your list as a destination. Work it in. If you're going north, you want to make a detour because not only is it a great place to stop, it's a great place to ride around in the area. Look up Beaverdale, British Columbia, Highway 33, It's the Red Rock Garage, and their website is www.redrockgarage.ca. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, you pop in to see them, or if you're going to email them and find out about accommodations with their B&B or their camping, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's www.redrockgarage.ca. Did you drive through a a checkpoint at one point or one one, uh, spot on the trip? Oh God, I did that. Yeah. So, uh, we had just crossed into Bolivia. Um, and I think one of the things that was in the back of our minds was that it was, it was a Sunday and you need to get the, um, the motorbike insurance and they were closed. And so we didn't have that. So we were already sort of like, okay, at least for today we got to be extra careful. Right. Um, what maybe about, I don't know, 20, 30 kilometers, if I'm remembering after the border, 
we come through a checkpoint where they're, they are so obviously waving no, us no, over. No, no, they were not obviously waving us over. They were on the side of the road. They weren't really wearing uniforms. Can't remember what they no, looked like they at the time. No, they were definitely wearing uniforms. No, they, they were definitely so. wearing us. They were waving, they were waving some cars down ahead of us. I could see it. And I was in the lead because I always like to be the, the first one. Um, and Greg rides behind. And at the time, we didn't have our communicators. So everything we were doing was by by hand signals. Um, so we were, I, I saw ahead of me that they were pulling people over. And I thought that the guy, like he waved to the one in front of me, which was a, a micro, a, um, a minivan, a public little bus. And they waved him over and he pulled aside. And so then I just kept going. I didn't see anything else. So I just kept going. And it was only, we kept going. And Greg, I don't know, you weren't flashing at me. You weren't doing, you didn't honk I, I at mean, me. I tried to at first, but at some point you've, you've totally run the checkpoint. And so I guess you just keep going. <laughs> we stopped for gas maybe an hour later when I explained to you what, what happened back there. Um, and I said, you know, well, we'll see if, if this turns into something. Um, but we were headed into, uh, into La Paz. You had a, just had a friend who was coming in to, to visit for a week. So we had to get to La Paz and it was about sort of on the outskirts of La Paz, just as you start getting into all the, the crazy traffic and, uh, you know, just, just the commotion. Um, I think it was two, you know, very official, uh, vehicles pull us over. And I mean, they weren't joking around. They just basically you know, got right in front of us. Yeah. And they made me ride on the dirt on the shoulder and like they pushed me off the road so that I get, so that I'd get off. Oh, yeah, wow. Was, so they didn't just wave you over. They're actually no, forcing you no. over. They had the window down and she was saying something, but I couldn't hear her. But like they started like driving me off the road and then I got onto the dirt and then I stopped there and Greg was behind me. Yeah. Like when, when they kind of box, you know, yeah. box you in and then out, I guess. Um, and are guns drawn at this point? No, no guns were drawn, but they sort of, you know, um, they all got out from different doors and everybody, you know, and took positions. I mean, they, you know, this wasn't the first time they'd done this. Um, and so it turns out that, you know, we're like, okay, what, what's going on here? Because there were about eight of them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, two two uh, large vehicles. Were no, and then do you know uh, at this point why they're pulling you over? Or are you totally no, blindsided? No, no idea. I had no idea. Like, I didn't really think about Just it. Just had no idea. I'm thinking, and I'm thinking to myself, this is it. I mean, we, we ran a checkpoint. I mean... <laughs> And, and that was it. Uh, so I had had the, the classic GoPro on the top of my helmet. And when we had stopped previously at, uh, for gas, I took the GoPro off. And I don't know why, but I just had this sense of like, you know, we're going to get, I don't know, I just was prepared for something. So they're asking, you know, was one of you carrying a camera? Did one of you have a camera on your helmet? I'm like, no, no one here's got cameras on their helmets. I don't know what you're talking about. But they, you know, they called back and forth to the checkpoint to see if like, what were these the same people? Um, and so it, it turned out it, it was the, like the Bolivian DEA, they call it the Falcone. Um, I don't know what that stands for anyway. Um, and they, you know, they explained that they need to review everything. They showed us identification and I must say they were very professional about mm -hmm. it. Um, but they basically tore everything we had apart on the side of the road there for at least two hours. Yeah. So I, I had a woman, uh, the, the woman officer was looking through all of my stuff. Um, they even went so far as to like look in the gas tank in case there was something there. Um, and then she started going through all of my things and at the, I had tampons that were there. And so she's asking me in Spanish. So my Spanish still isn't very good at that time. 
And she's asking me, she's looking at these things like, what are these? And like, I'm trying my best to explain blood and things. And, and I don't know, it took her a while until she really understood it. And she's, and it's like, I, I didn't understand why she didn't know what it was. <laughs> and it was just make, and then there were like five guys surrounding us. And I'm trying to explain to this, to this woman. And uh, finally I got my point across and she put them away. Uh, but she, she absolutely went through, through everything that I had. No, I mean, they, they were certain that they had us nailed. I mean, this was cut and dry. We were, we were carrying something. So when they got to, uh, the first aid kit, uh, that I keep kind of on the top of the pannier, um, you know, then they started going through and, and we had, uh, we had pulled together quite a few different sort of, uh, medications and pills, which you can get very easily in Africa. And so all the, you know, painkillers and whatever that you might need along the way. One of the things we had was Quartem, which is for malaria. Jess and I had both uh, come down with malaria several times in Africa. And so we said, well, you know, if it, if it comes back, we should have this. Well, Quartem, or at least that brand, um, I mean, it looks like exactly what you expect a cartoon narcotic or cartoon drug like on a just say no poster to look like. It is like bright yellow. It's practically flashing saying this is, you know, an illegal drug. Oh, and you have to say that. So Greg is very anal with his things. One of the things that he does is he likes to put things in little Ziploc bags. So now he has all these little baggies in his <laughs> first aid kit. He does have them labeled, but they're in these little baggies, little drug baggies. Right. So, you know, they get to each of them. The Quartem was like the obvious thing. This was uh, narcotic gold. So then they had to take out the, um, the testing kit. Uh, and and test the medication, test the the quartem. So you know, long story short, uh, two plus hours go by. They're you know totally frustrated at this point because they were so certain that they that they had us. And you know, finally the quartem comes up negative. They're radioing back and forth. It's like, look, we got to let these guys go. I mean, there's nothing here. Um, and then you know, at that point, it was hey, you know, thank you very much, and you know, gave us advice on where to go in their country mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah, that part was lovely. (laughs) And then it was another hour of us putting all of our, of our stuff back together. (laughs) That's what I was going to say. So they pull away and they sort of leave you with all your gear stretched out across the ground. Yeah. We had like our big duffel bags. They had opened them all up. Everything was strewn aside and it was dusty. It was this dirt section on the the side of the road. Passing by and just, Uh, you know, blasting you with dust and and exhaust and everything. Like, okay, you got to pack up and get out of here. Did it run through your mind when you're getting pulled over like that is, especially when they start to dig in and you can see they're serious and they're looking for something. Does it run through your mind the thought of what if, what if somebody puts something on here? What if the quartum shows up as a drug? You know, uh, fortunately I, I, I would say that a what if didn't really come to me. Um, oh, that's good. I, I think, you know, we, we're fortunate in the sense that having lived overseas and in, in a few challenging countries, you know, it wasn't our first rodeo in that sense. And, and like I said, um, staying calm, staying patient and just having a good attitude. And it's like, it's going to work out. Okay. And just keep telling yourself that. Yeah. Greg, never, you, you, you never let me ask you any questions while we were there. You were trying to tell me to be quiet and not mention anything (laughs) because I was trying to ask Greg, what's going on and what are they saying? And he didn't want to, he was trying to be very professional about it and stay calm and be quiet. Um, so then I had to sort of 
fend for myself with the with the woman and, and the people on my side and Greg and his uh, his officers were on his side. <laughs> yeah. I, I probably make it sound like I handled it so well. I'm sure I was a basket case. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is sort of a problem if you talk too much, isn't it? With any sort of situation. I mean, you know, you, you, you go to the border, anything, you just don't give any more information, answer your questions and that's it. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And it was just, you know, be cool. <laughs> You guys did have one fair size breakdown with a, a broken chain because that's pretty major je- on Jess's bike. Well, I mean, we certainly we had sort of one of those, uh, I guess, fortuitous situations in that um, Jess had a chain break in the middle of nowhere. I, this was in also Peru. in Peru mm-hmm. or this was in Peru. Yeah. And um, and just sort of uh, in the middle of nowhere, dirt road, you know, going through the hills um, no, it was at high elevation, high elevation yeah. and through the hills. And you just randomly, you know, all of a sudden she just skids one way and skids the other way. And fortunately the other way was into the high side of the hill and not to the, to the you know, off, off the end of the road. I mean, mm-hmm. there's nothing else there. So, so the chain broke and it actually locked up the rear wheel on you that, and you skidded in and this on Jess's bike. That's exactly yeah. what happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, right after being chased by dogs too. So oh, it was like yeah. you get out of one thing and then right into another. So what do you think um, that was from? I think the chain was too loose. Mm-hmm. Think so? I think so. It's probably Greg is so so the the responsibility here normally is 70/30. Greg is 70% responsible for the bikes. I'm 30%. So this is Greg's baby. He's the one who's <laughs> supposed to make sure that the bikes are in good condition. Uh, and if I notice anything, then he's the one who normally goes and fixes it. So he is the one who tests to make sure that the the chain is tightened properly and that it's lubed uh, and I think that it might have been a bit loose at the time. Mm. And it's also important to mention that clearly, as you can tell, we are very much a, you know, a, a blame sort of household. <laughs> I was <laughs> just thinking, maybe I should leave this for the counselor. Fault <laughs> on each thing. Uh, that's just understood. But yes, I'm sure it was my fault. I agree yes. with that. Mm-hmm. So what do you do with that? You, you said there was a broken chain in the mountains in the, at a high altitude. Uh, obviously, if you got vehicles going by, but you're not in a good spot. How did you fix that? Do you have a, a um, any sort of uh, links and, and uh, chain tool with you? No, and there were no vehicles going by. It was like the middle of nowhere. There was one one guy on his horse that came by uh, with some goats, but he was the only one. Um, and so Greg had to. Greg left me, and he went to the to the town ahead to go and see if he could find somebody or some or a, a chain for for me. Yeah, it was like a so it was like a forty five minute ride um, ahead. And literally, as I pull into this, you know, kind of dusty uh, Peruvian town, there is a motorbike, a uh, little taller, a little motorbike shop. Literally, as you pull in, I mean, the, it hasn't even become a tarmac road yet, and and there's this motor. And I just walk up to, you know, pulled up to them and held out a broken chain and said, "Do you have something like this?" And the guy walks in, walks out, and there he's got a brand new one that fits the uh, <laughs> the uh, G650. I mean, it was like they were waiting for it, it was. <laughs> totally uh, fortuitous. Couldn't get a better uh, breakdown than that. So do, do you carry a chain breaker and, and riveter with you now with a spare link? No, I don't. And and I guess maybe because with that, uh, with that experience, um, I also borrowed, you know, that those exact tools and, and everything I needed and said, okay, I'll be back in a couple hours and I'll give it back to you. And it was that simple. So um, now I just make sure that it's always tightened. So now I've become very neurotic when it comes to that. 60, and that's 40, always maybe. my first thing. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> we, but the worry is probably 99 to one. Yeah. We also in this, in this family don't like to learn from our mistakes. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
So you're in, you got to, to Santiago, I think you said. Mm-hmm. And then, then do you fly back home at that point? Well, we had, we had, uh, had the, the aim from the beginning to sort of not come home. Um, we didn't necessarily want to go back to Africa, but you know, I had sort of convinced Jess, well, may, you know, maybe somewhere in Latin America and, and maybe Chile because Chile is just a, a beautiful country. Um, and we did think something that I would recommend to anybody who's doing, you know, sort of a longer trip like that, that does come to an end, which is we had planned for a month at the end, uh, where we got an Airbnb and stayed in this case in Santiago and just sort of decompressed and enjoyed and got to know the place before we sort of had to go back to real life. Um, and in, in that case for us, I was actually going and looking for a job in, in, in Chile, in Santiago. Um, and that was a couple of weeks of that two, three weeks until we sort of thought to ask the question, so what about our bikes? How, how, what's the process for importing them? And this was maybe a year into a new law that they had, uh, implemented that prevents you from importing a used motorcycle, mm. basically because of all you guys who've done the North South trip before us <laughs> and got to the bottom and sold your bike because it was worth more than you bought it new. And so they just, you know, they, they put the kibosh on that. Well, there's a couple of lessons in in what you're saying. Let me just interrupt for for a second here, Greg, um, about looking uh, at the whole picture before you sort of jump in, right? Because there's there's two instances you've had where, and I'm I'm not saying that I'm any different, but I'm just saying it's kind of interesting that we do these things. You know, if if you're thinking of of moving there, for instance, you might want to check out the whole thing. What exactly is involved? Can we switch the bikes over? Can we get insurance? Can Can we become citizens? All that sort of stuff before you actually start trying to lay down roots, I guess. Yeah. And it was not uh, intentional ignorance. It was just uh, no, no. de facto ignorance, really. <laughs> it was, well, it's, and you don't think of it. I mean, it's just one of those yeah. things you just start doing that. You, you just look at the next logical step, I guess, and go to it. But I guess for something like that, um, yeah, it's probably um, wise to go through the whole thing and, and figure out, okay, what's it all going to take? What's all going to be involved here? But you you mentioned it. Let me just jump back because you mentioned that mm-hmm. you, you actually planned on not coming back. So you were looking for a new country to live in then. Yeah, we were sort of looking for for what's next. Uh, we weren't ready to go, like I said, go back to Africa and, and go back specifically to aid work. But um, you know, I I had long wanted to uh, to live in in Latin America. I had done you know a little bit of that when I was younger, and and know, also because Greg's American and I'm Canadian, we weren't married at the time, so we could live in neither of those countries. Um, I uh, in order to to be able to work. So if we went to Canada. Um, and we got married, it would have taken about a year for Greg to get his work permit versus in the States. Um, I'd have to go through the whole process and it would probably be about three or four months until I would get my residency to, to be able to work. Um, Mm -hmm. so we didn't really want to go through that whole, whole process. Um, but we didn't really want to stay in aid work either, um, in, in another country. But you were married at this point now. No, we weren't. So we didn't end up getting married. Oh, when, when did you end up getting married and changing the bikes over then? We, yeah. So that's the thing. So we, uh, just as you were saying before about sort of, uh, learn, you know, kind of gather all the information before running down a, a road. Um, and we had made that assumption that, oh, well then we've got to get married. Well, on a, we sort of stopped for a moment and said, well, let's just go back across the border, go to the DMV in San Diego or where it was, and just make sure that we actually can't put this bike in your name. And that ended up saving us from getting married <laughs> oh. at that point. Yeah, so I dodged that bullet. Oh, I see. So, Greg, you were you were pretty determined at that point, right? <laughs> You'll drive the distance just to make sure you got an out. Look, Jim, I I was still I'm like I I had intended it to be a three day a week thing, okay? So, 
So so now you find out that you can't import your your motorcycles. Not at all. You're stuck with mm-hmm. this. Um, at that point, I guess, what do you do? You you abandon you the plan? Yeah, I mean, we sort of at that point, um, I think our our bandwidth was sort of used up in terms of we've been traveling for a long time. We we put some effort into into Chile, and we said, okay, well, let's let's go back to the states and and regroup, um, and uh, you know, put our put our bikes on in containers and and ship them out. And, uh, and then that's where I, marriage finally, you know, tracked us down and <laughs> sunk its, sunk its teeth in closet. Yes, yes. We got married in California. Mm. How do you end up in Guatemala? Well, so, uh, we had spent a couple of years in new Orleans, um, where I had worked for, for a couple of years prior, uh, to going overseas and, um, you know, just kind of got that, I guess that wanderlust or just need to have a new experience. This is after uh, you came back from, from your North South trip. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, and one reason that Jess, uh, doesn't have us citizenship is we just didn't have the staying power, I guess, to, to hang out in the States for long enough. What is it like a three years? Yeah. Minimum after, three years? after three years, I could have applied to become a citizen, but, uh, it was it was just over two years, and I didn't want to I didn't want to stay in the states anymore. Wanted to try something different, um, looking for a new adventure. So Guatemala is, of course, one of the places that you almost have to come through on on this type of trip. Uh, we we came through here, sort of at you know it's kind of like where the the bottleneck occurs, right, from Mexico, and we came through Lake Atitlan. We loved it. It's it's absolutely spectacular. For anyone who doesn't know it, look it up right away. Um, and, uh, it was certainly kind of one of the places we said, we've got to come back to. And Jess randomly found a contract that was open for consulting on an NGO project or nonprofit project. Um, the organization is a, it's a microfinance, um, and education and now health program, uh, for indigenous women, um, in Guatemala. And so they were launching a health program and, and I have quite a background in that. And so, you know, they, they brought me out here to, to sort of get that program off the ground. Uh, as it turned out, our, our employers at the time in New Orleans wanted to keep us around too. And so that turned out to be just a great situation for us and a, and a great sort of introduction into so working remotely. remotely. So you arranged to work remote for the employer in New Orleans and you head off to Guatemala. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, now Guatemala, from what I know, it's a very poor country. I mean, I think it's like seventy-five uh, percent of the of the country is um, below poverty line. Um, mm-hmm. what, what's it like from your description? Um, Guatemala has a lot of interesting pockets. I think I would say there are a lot of areas that are are very touristy. Um, where we're living now, it's it's we're on a lake. It's surrounded by volcanoes. There's towns around the lake. Um, and this is a place where a lot of uh, tourists like to come because it's just very peaceful. Um, so here you'll find a lot of restaurants, you'll find um, a lot of imported foods, supermarkets. Um, so it's quite uh, it's quite developed in that sense. Um, there are still you just go a little bit outside and people are still living in in more of the shack type uh, housing. Um, but where we are, uh, where we're living, um, it is a little bit more developed. And just in the different areas of Guatemala, the city is obviously quite developed. You can get anything that you would want in the States, basically, maybe just a little bit more costly. Um, and um, it's just got everything. It's got the the coasts uh, where you can go to the beach and it's lovely, or the highlands uh, where we are. And even further north in Guatemala, there's it's all green and lush. Um, and then in the Paten region where Tikal is, one of the Mayan ruins that's really popular, 
um, that area is nice and it's lowlands, but it's hot. Um, and they've got a lot of wildlife. So it's got a bit of everything, sort of like how California has a bit of everything. Uh, Guatemala has that. Um, the roads are not fantastic. The, the Pan American, which runs through all of uh, Central America, it's quite uh, well developed. In some areas, it's four lane roads. Sometimes it's, t- it's just the two lanes. There are potholes, obviously, but it's, it's lovely. It goes through the mountains here. So it's really windy um, and it's just a, a lovely motorcycle road. And then there's other other secondary roads which are which are dirt. So there's been a lot of dirt riding, off roading, um, but it's just it's something new every time you go out. Yeah. Um, but we also uh, see some north south or south to north uh, trip riders uh, that come through, um, and those are the ones that we try and keep contact with and invite them to come over and, and have a drink with us when they're here. So we do see quite a few. We'd love to see some more, but we are we are sort of on that path. If you are doing one of the one of the bigger trips, uh, you would pass this area. Yeah, that's been a, a just a fantastic experience. Um, and in fact, we've had we've had just recently a couple of um, adventure rider radio alumni that have come through. <laughs> um, we had I heard I heard Henry on your program, Henry uh, Crew, and so I reached out to him and said, "Look, you know, you can't come through here without stopping." And so he took us up on it. And I mean, he's just a fantastic guy. Nice. Uh, we, he stayed for a couple of days. We had uh, two wheels in motion uh, stay with us for, what, a week? Mm-hmm. They're, I mean, they're great. They, you know, like the Aussies, they're doing it backwards. They're going from <laughs> south to north. But once you get past that, uh, no, just great people. So we, we've had actually a string of, of people come through and um, either have a drink with us or in a lot of cases, you know, stay for a few days. And it's they, you know, that's the other side of um, <clears throat> motorcycle tra- travel, I guess, when you can't be out there yourself um, to be able to experience it and, you know, with everyone that's coming through. How do you end up with a dog? <laughs> so that's all me. <laughs> um, I've always wanted a dog, but I uh, just never was in the right place in the right time to have one. Living overseas uh, in Africa, uh, knowing that every year or so I moved to a different place, it just was not feasible at the time. And so when we moved out here uh, and and saw the situation and said, well, this was a place that we could stay for a few years, um, I looked over to Greg and said, okay, I'd like to have one. And there was a breeder who was on the other side of the lake here, and they had a litter. And he had posted that they had them available. So we went over there and I just fell in love. Okay, um, hang on, hang so, on. I got to stop you there because I think you just jumped over something really big there. You <laughs> you said you turned to Greg and you said, I want one. Okay, now we have to remember that you guys are on motorcycles here. And then, but Greg didn't say anything. <laughs> so I'm sort of curious because I have the feeling Greg had something to say there. <laughs> well, I am an incredibly supportive uh, husband. Oh, God. And so, you know, whatever she wants, I mean, she's the one who, you know, who rules here. Um, no, but certainly I, I worried a bit uh, in transportation-wise. And, and more importantly, sort of our, our primary hobby and source of fun and reason for, for moving out here was to, you know, travel around and uh, enjoy m- motorcycle travel. And so this was an enormous threat to that. Uh, I, I definitely was on my radar with a big flashing, you know, uh, red light. Um, but you know, she, I knew, I knew she wanted it for a long time. So yeah. yeah I and did. I convinced him that like the dog could stay home and we can go on a ride and it wouldn't be the end of the world. And if we had to move somewhere, somewhere we could ship the dog and all of these things, never really considering that, that she could come along. So, 
uh, when we got her, it was only, I don't know, it was a few months in where we started thinking about that. When we went on our first, um, first trip, a longer trip, we went for a week to Mexico to renew our visas. And, uh, as we were riding out, um, I just, I, I said to Greg on the communicator that like, I'm really missing Moxie and Moxie's our, our German shepherd that we got. Um, and I said, we're well, really missing her. It's too bad that she can't come along. And that sort of was what started our whole, uh, uh, dog carrier project. Now, Greg, is this a, a you, you take this on, cause I have the feeling this is going to be your 70% uh, of responsibility. <laughs> do you take this upon yourself to figure out, okay, how do I get this ever growing dog onto the back of a motorcycle. We're talking a German Shepherd here, so it's got to be, I mean, it's going to grow up to be, what, 70, 80 pounds. Exactly. I know. I didn't pick like a schnauzer or no, like, I mean, or like a pug or something. So, so yeah, we started, um, you know, that, that idea was kind of planted, like, is there some way? And, and you know, for everyone who's got a, a, do- a dog and leaves, you know, the dog behind when you go for a ride or, or a trip, you know, the look in their eyes, I mean, it's just piercing, right? So that stays with you. And Um, and I guess I would say when it comes to these kinds of problems or projects or opportunities, um, I'm like a dog with a bone. (laughs) So, you know, just, I kind of got a little OCD and said, I've got to figure this out. Um, so, you know, the first thing we did, uh, I guess I would say like any great, um, experiment or, or, or challenge or whatever, you know, you got to Google it. So, So there, there are some amazing things online in terms of uh, do-it-yourself uh, dog carriers. Um, trailers or sidecars. Trailers, and, exactly. Well, yeah, and I was going to say sidecar is sort of a natural, isn't it, when you're talking about something that size? Yeah, and, and we looked into that and we just, you know, we wanted to stay true to two wheels, I guess. We wanted to, frankly, be able to um, cut through in traffic because that's like the only way you survive here uh, in Guatemala is, you know, being able to, to cut through because these traffic jams can be, you know, out of this world. So, um, the sidecar would, would complicate things, uh, trailer, you know, the, the sort of physics and dynamics of that was kind of concerning. And, um, and also, you know, there's a lot of expense in all that. Um, we wanted something that was kind of simpler and, and allowed us to kind of do it the way we had been doing it and imagined to do it. Um, so, you know, there's, there's some things out there and it's a really uh, good kind of Google, Google it experience to, to do like dog carry because there's some really clever stuff. Um, we'd even reached out to the pack track that I think you've had on the program. Um, but I, if I recall like yeah. the size, you know, the weight that they've, um, set their carrier up for was, was maybe like 50 pounds maximum. Um, and like you said, I mean, Moxie was going to become easily, you know, 60 to 70 pounds. Yeah. And I think there's this covered I think that's the design of theirs yep. was to keep it inside. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, you know, um, so really, I, I guess version one, when we, once we kind of got down to it and started, you know, started welding, I, I'd become friendly with a, a welder out here and he'd been teaching me. So, um, you know, version one was basically like an overgrown and obnoxious, uh, pizza delivery box that, <laughs> that the motorcycles use around here. Um, and I mean, it was just sort of a, it was a beast and, you know, you could almost like hear the, the chassis kind of groaning, you know, and, and complaining. And when we did the test rides with it, like not having it. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, just, I mean, just kind of out of control. So we, I put it aside for maybe a month or something like that. And then kind of woke up in the middle of the night one night and turned to Jess and, you know, shook her awake and said, you know, it, the, the carrier doesn't need to carry her. It was, it was some pun like that or something, but it was like, it doesn't need to carry her. It just sort of needs to secure her in there. You want the weight 
to be on the bike itself and just make sure, you know, that she can't come out and that she's protected in case of, uh, in case of a crash or anything else. So that, that's how we kind of came up with this, um, what we've, uh, since called the canine moto cockpit. And it's basically like, you know, if you, you take crash bars or, um, a pannier rack or something like that, and it's, uh, sort of two parallel lines of, of these crash bars that sort of hold her in. And she's, she, her weight is directly on the seat, uh, with just, you know, basically a cushion under her. Uh, to make it comfortable. And so the, the bike itself, she, she's sort of a cross between um, a passenger and luggage. So this is a platform that goes on behind the rider and, and fastens to the bike that the dog sits on. How does it keep her in? Are there bars up fairly high? Well, yeah, I mean, I want to say that it, instead of saying platform, I mean, I really say almost like it's the sides of a cage or the sides of a, of a carrier without the bottom. Because, you know, if you kind of picture your, your, your motorcycle seat and, and kind of the luggage platform behind it, and we did not put an actual luggage rack on there to keep it as low as possible. So you just kind of um, put a purpose-made cushion down, uh, and then you're putting kind of bars on either side to which she can be harnessed and, and which are padded sort of like, a, like, you know, roll bars or something for a Jeep. Yeah, so, so they've, been, they've been upholstered. They're, they're cushiony. And then there's attachment points on the sides of the carrier, two in the front and two in the back. And we run rock straps through those and they harness and they attach to her harness. So Moxie is lying down. She's not sitting up. She's laying down. Um, there's some give with the bunginess of the, the rock straps, but she, for the, for the ride, she's laying down. So the dog is behind you facing forward or back? She's facing forward. So her paws are like uh, uh, right against my back. And, and is she fine uh, being fastened down? She's really, she's tethered down into place. She can't get up to mm-hmm. move around or anything. She's fine with that. She, she is perfectly fine with it. She can see from, she, if you see any of the videos of, of when we're riding together, you'll see that she's peeking out from either side of me. She's so busy looking and smelling and, and seeing what's going on that she, she's fine. Um, but it's been a process of getting her to, to acclimate to the carrier and getting on and getting off and, and just staying for long periods. But now she's a pro. When you describe it as a process, but really it was like a two day. I mean, Moxie was ready for this way before <laughs> Jess was. Okay. Does she bark at things when you go by like a cow or another no, dog? No, she, she doesn't bark. So she's two years to a little over two years old now. Um, so she's still basically a puppy. Um, but she doesn't bark at anything when she's on the carrier. She definitely will swing her big head around if she smells something or she sees the cows as we're as we're riding by. Um, but no, she doesn't bark or she doesn't try to to leap off. Like I've, uh, the cats are her biggest enemy here. And uh, if if she's on on the ground and she sees one, she'll definitely want to go after it. But I've seen her. I've had her on the carrier, and a cat has walked by, and she she perks, but she doesn't try and leap off. I think she's she understands that when she's harnessed in, like she can't go anywhere, so she doesn't she doesn't try and move. We're going to put some photos of this in our show notes for anyone who's interested in seeing exactly what this is. Talk about the dog apparel. Sure. So, so we started, so Greg had originally started rough on the road, R O U G H rough on the road when we were doing our North to South trip. And that was what we, where we posted all of our videos and fun things about motorcycling. And once I got the dog here, once we had Moxie, um, and I really wanted to, to take her along on the bike. Um, we were really, I, I really wanted to do something that would sort of dress her up. Um, and 
in Guatemala, there are so many textiles. Everything is so colorful here. Um, and it's such wonderful handmade work. And the thing was, is I, I don't particularly enjoy wearing it myself. It's a bit bright for me, but, but why not for my dog, which is what I was thinking. And so with Greg's connection with the NGO that was doing the microfinance and, um, uh, with the indigenous, uh, Guatemalan women, um, there was a connection there. They had a group of artisans, um, that they were training and providing loans to, um, that did some of the textile work that, that I really liked. So we reached out to a few of the artisans and, um, came to them with designs that we, we created. Um, we sort of used what was already out there and developed our own unique designs. Um, and then we brought it to the artisans and asked them if they could make it. Um, and the reason why I, I wanted to do it this way is in the market here, there are some dog collars and dog products, but a lot of it is leather. And I'm not a big fan of leather. I think it's a bit harsh and hard for the dog. Um, so I wanted something softer and uh, more resistant um, and that would, um, that would just jive a little bit better with our, with our idea. So when we went to the artisans, they were able to create the designs for us. Um, and then what we did is we, we used industrial materials. So we used polypropylene webbing. We used YKK buckles. Uh, we used really durable, um, uh, equipment so that the collars would be long lasting. So not only will they be beautiful, but they'll be durable. Um, and that sort of goes along with our whole motif with everything with the, uh, the idea of let your paws take you there. And that's, that's sort of what we, what our logo sort of is. So we, we started with the collars. We've got leashes. Now we've got beds, bandanas, and some poop bag dispensers, and we're working on harnesses and a few other products, but, uh, it's, it's, it's a process, but we're really enjoying this. And, and it really gives back to the artisans as well, because we are paying a fair, fair wage to them for their products and they love it. They like to see that their products are being used on dogs because they originally they thought it was like the silliest thing. Like here in Guatemala, people don't baby their dogs the way that that we do in North America. So for them, it was something unique and different. It wasn't just the typical clothing that they were creating there. They're doing something for dogs. And when they saw the photos and then they saw their faces on on our website and, and the bios that we put up, they just get really excited. And, it, and it's fun to see. And, and I'm glad that we're able to support these women. Um, in the work that they're doing. Well, and I'd like to just jump in to say, you know, uh, one thing, I mean, as, as kind of ex-aid workers, you know, that's a piece that really spoke to us is um, how to do this in like a socially good kind of way um, and a much more sustainable way that's market-based um, as opposed to, you know, through sort of charitable uh, giving. And so this has really spoken to us in terms of ways that we we are seeing making an impact in people's lives and I think a much more profound and, and kind of um, long lasting way than a lot of the aid work projects that that we did, you know, uh, in Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I, I was just going to mention about the colors. I saw the pictures of the, of the colors that you have. They're just incredible colors. I don't know if they're colors that you don't get in North America or maybe it's just the combination of it. But where do they get these vibrant colors? Yeah, it's 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 part of their culture. In Guatemala, each of the different uh, areas have their own design and their own color schemes. Um, so you'll see as you travel through that where we live here in Solola, they've got a certain pattern and a certain color that they use for their traditional clothing. If you were to go further north to the Paten region, they've got something different. Um, so everybody is sort of identified by their clothing, and that was how how the Guatemalan, the indigenous uh, people here in Guatemala would identify. Uh, each other by. 
Um, so if you go to the markets in Chichicastenango is one of the biggest markets, I think, in Central America, mm-hmm. uh, a typical like artisan market. It's exploding with color, all of these different designs and the way that they put the colors together. And all of it is like natural dyes. They use the, the leaves and the seeds and the bark in order to create the colors. Um, so it, it's all or it's naturally spun cotton. Um, so it's really cool the way that they do it. And that was really the inspiration for, for these products. Now, as you mentioned, your your website for your travels was rough on the road, rough written out mm-hmm. the way we do. Um, this The website for these products is R-U-F-F on the road. Yep, exactly. So this is rough on the road to, uh, to give uh, a, an acknowledgement to our furry friends. <laughs> Very cool. I mean, that's that's just great. How long do you think you're going to stay in Guatemala for now? You know, we're really enjoying it. You know, the place that we're living, the area that we're living, uh, being able to be here with the dog, doing the riding that we get to do. Um, I expect that we'll be here for a few more years. Uh, we, we don't really have any intention of leaving, especially now that we have this business and we've created these relationships with the artisans. Um, it's something that I, I think that we want to continue for a while. Yeah. And there's also something very special about, um, kind of being in an, in an, going to a new place for yourself and, you know, you think like we certainly did when we traveled through here, you know, uh, on our on our motorcycle trip. OK, pick three or four highlights and, you know, do that and then keep going. And then, of course, once you spend a little more time here, you realize, well, but there's that waterfall over there that we've never visited. And then there's the road that takes you to, you know, to the laguna that has to be seen. And so you just start finding out how many amazing sites there are in such a small area. Um, it's like good luck, you know, pulling yourself out of it. Looking back now on your, your adventure, really, I mean, it's the, these last few years of adventure, what have you learned? Well, I guess um, one of the things that I would say is is this idea of, as I call it, like bandwidth. Um, it, it's kind of about knowing like what you can handle uh, at that given time. And so what we certainly learned about during our first trip was you know, I was, I was interested in doing photos and videos and, you know, wanted to go down tough roads and everything. And, you know, Jess is, is at that point now and well beyond it where she can handle that. But at the time, like her bandwidth just wasn't there. And, and so I think a lot of what makes the adventure a a positive adventure or the, the travel, the experience, a positive one versus a negative one is sort of, um, I don't know, including the things and, and planning it or, or at least living it to what you can handle at the time, you know? So if you're having a, just, if, if it's enough to just kind of get yourself from point A to point B, then sort of let that be enough and don't clutter it with a whole bunch of things that is frankly just going to make you miserable. Um, and yet as you kind of grow into it and your bandwidth expands, uh, you can start sort of adding things in. And, and the dog is a great example. I mean, uh, Jessica trying to ride with a dog, you know, two, three years ago, I wouldn't have been able to do it even close. But now all of a sudden she's riding around like she's been doing this her whole life. It's hard to imagine that she struggled so much in the very beginning uh, as as a rider. Jess, how about you? Yeah, I think my the biggest thing that I've learned is about accepting the challenge. And at the, I, I think I would say that I didn't really accept the challenge of the trip uh, when we first started it, uh, when we did the North South trip. Um, like I said, I, I went along because I wanted to stay with Greg and I, I thought that I could do it, but it was, it was challenging for me. There were, there was a lot of anxiety and it, I never really said that this is something that I want to do myself. 
Um, I felt a little bit pushed into it. Um, so it made it a lot more difficult for me to really understand um, what it was that I wanted to and get enjoyment out of it. And now that I'm feeling more comfortable with the bike and, and how I'm feeling about myself as a motorcyclist, it's really helped me enjoy things a lot more and see the value in it and just get the pleasure out of it that I would wish I had gotten from these things from the beginning. So I would say that the biggest thing that I had learned is to make sure that anything that you want to do, you, you, you take a moment and say, this is something that I want to do. I'm going to accept this challenge, regardless of what happens, if my bike goes down or if I look silly, um, I'm accepting it and I'm accepting what the outcome is going to be. And so be it. And let's move forward. Jess, Greg, great to talk with you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jim. Thank Been a pleasure. You. That was Jessica Stone and Gregory Stone from their home in Guatemala. You can check out what they're doing at their website, roughontheroad.com. And no matter how you spell it, I think you're going to come up with it. Also, that link is in our show notes, of course, as it always is. And we've got some great photographs of them, what they're doing, their dog on the back of their bike. Drop by our website, have a look at the show notes. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. And Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much. Hey, we need your help with this show. You know, we have a, a model of a mixture of some advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. And to be frank, we don't get a whole bunch of support. What, one, what support we do get is absolutely fantastic and we appreciate it so much. But I encourage you, if you like the show, please drop by our website and click on the support button. There's a bunch of different ways to do it there. We would love it if you'd sign up for our, our monthly Patreon account. But any way you want to do it, we would love your support. We've got stickers and other incentives to send out to you. So we'd really appreciate it. Now, I guess it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Thanks very much for listening. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. See you next week. Hi, this is Jeremy Craker. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Adventure Rider Radio.